Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, as we turn to your Word this morning, may you impart life. We ask in anticipation that your Spirit, he would be here. That he would work in our hearts and our minds, that he would transform us more into the image of your Son. Lord, if you do not do the work, we are hopeless. So we ask, as humble sinners, that you would meet us here this morning. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. One of the strange things you'll note about life in general, especially as you age, is that despite all of the beauty and wonder of this world, all of your best days combined, that sometimes this place is just really messed up. Sometimes really terrible things happen. The darkness really does come in, and it's so thick you feel like you can touch it, and then it will never lift. Sometimes, even often it appears, the wicked prosper, and the righteous suffer. How do we live in a world like that? Now you have heard me on many occasions, on many a Sunday morning, a rail against the modern gospel of our day of trusting your feelings or trusting your emotions. It really is one of the main false gospels of our day. This command that if you want to have your best life, you need to look within. You need to mine deeper within. And when we are ruled by our emotions, when they become unquestionable, when they become sacred, what we get is a bunch of toddlers walking around in adult bodies. And if you haven't noticed, that's exactly what we often have. This false gospel is appealing because who doesn't want to always be right? Who doesn't want to think that every feeling they have is completely and 100% justified? But even a moment's self-reflection would teach you that as appealing as that is, when two people try to live together who both feel that way, we can't live together. You can live that way all by yourself, but you won't be able to live with any other person whatsoever in any meaningful way if that is the core of how you operate. But I want to be careful here this morning because this is one of the major false gospels of our day and it has to be addressed, but we Christians do have a tendency to when we see a problem to overcorrect in the other direction. And I don't want you to hear that coming from this pulpit. So I don't want you to hear me saying that all of your emotions are inherently wrong, that all of your emotions are evil, and you should never feel anything. Christianity is not a rebranding of being stoic or stoicism. The Bible includes righteous examples of the full array of human emotions. Just think about the life of Christ. We could talk about the Psalms, and we've done that before. The Psalms, you have the great heights of David's life to the great despairs of his life. But think of Christ. 
Christ was so joyful in his eating and his feasting that he got confused with drunkards. That's what they accused him of. You can think of his great weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Great joy, great grief. You can think of his great anger in the seven woes to the Pharisees or the turning over of the tables in the temple. I don't know about you, but it doesn't really fit that uh, Jesus would have walked around just flipping over tables. I don't really care. He was angry. And he was right to be so. You can think of the great love and compassion he had towards children and to the sick and the crippled. Emotions themselves are not the problem. God has given them to us, and in a sense, they're part of what it means to bear the image of God. Well, God's emotions are very different than ours. God himself is described as being full of love and joy and anger. But it is the problem we have is making our emotions or our feelings the standard of life. The standard of what is true. To put it succinctly, we must conform our feelings to the truth. The truth does not or is not determined by your feelings. Let me say that again. We must conform our feelings to the truth, not the truth to our feelings. Thus, in Christian circles today, we sometimes reduce the Christian life to only some emotions and only very surface-level emotions. We can think, if we're not always happy, if we're not always joyful, then I must not be a very good Christian If I can't stare this darkness in the face and be full of happiness, then I must be doing something wrong. And this leads to a very hallmarky, fake Christianity that can't withstand the difficulties of life. This world is far more complicated than VeggieTales would lead you to believe. So how do we deal with the very highs of life and the very deep, agonizing lows? How do you deal with when your faith goes from seeming like it's on fire to feeling like it's dead, like it's ice, like it's March in Minnesota. (laughs) Much of 1 Peter is spent with how Christians should deal with trials and suffering. That's what today's passage is going to introduce us to. How do we live in light of a world that is sometimes royally messed up? Well, we must live with our eyes open about the realities of trial, grief, and even joy. So that's where Peter starts us here this morning. He says, in this you rejoice. Now you have to be careful here. That's where he starts uh, verse 6, but he's not pointing forward to your trials and your suffering. He's pointing backward to what we covered the last two weeks. In this you rejoice. Speaking about the sovereignty of God in your salvation. It is God who has caused you to be born again. If you look at the verses immediately before this. It is God who keeps your inheritance in heaven for you. It is God who keeps you in the midst of this crazy world. And in those truths, you must, as a Christian, rejoice. In fact, I think that's the very foundation upon which the Christian life is built. Rejoicing in what God has done. But then there is a sudden shift into the reality of suffering which is a major theme throughout this book. It says, In this you rejoice, comma, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. It's truly remarkable how quickly Peter shifts gears here. And it's truly remarkable in life when you 
been living for a long time with your eyes open, or if you do ministry uh, full-time, how quickly you can move from joy in life to grief. At the drop of a hat, everything's going swimmingly, and you get that phone call you never wanted to get. I remember, it was about five years ago now, a good friend of mine, he stood up in my wedding, or our wedding, I should say, Jameson Pals and his whole entire family were driving cross-country to their last missionary training before they would head to Japan. And they were hit by a semi. And Jameson and his wife Catherine and their children, young children, all died. That's what I woke up to that morning. My wife came upstairs and said, Jameson's dead. And I'm like, what? The news hit us like a ton of bricks. In fact, I think I went through all the stages really quickly. At first, I just said, ah, that didn't happen doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. The odd thing about that was not just that day, but in the weeks or the week and days that followed is it was right before Emily and my uh, anniversary. So we literally went from going to a funeral and one of the funerals I think I've cried the most at to celebrating our, our wedding anniversary. We went from grief to joy, grief to joy, back and forth in a matter of hours. That's life in this world sometimes. That's what we deal with often. And so Peter here lays out that problem. You will face trials in this life. These trials will bring with them grief. Pretending to not grieve is not an option. Pretending to not grieve is not a godly response. It, and more, even more than that, it's not healthy for you to not grieve. Again, Christ was sitting before the tomb of Lazarus as he was going to say to his good friend, come out of the tomb and live. And he knew he was going to do that. He stops and he weeps. And it says he's deeply moved in spirit. Lazarus grieve, or Jesus grieves, even though he's about to overcome all of it. We need to know, quite plainly, that you and I are not above trials. We live in a, a society that that stresses safety all the time. I can still see the signs everywhere. Make sure you're safe. The most important thing is that you're safe. This world is never safe. It never will be. You are not above suffering. You are not above experiencing terrible things. And many of you know that firsthand. And we would do well to think on those things before they come. One of my professors in undergraduate said this in our Christian theology class, he said, you need to make sure you have your theology about these things figured out before those days come. Because they will come. And I'm like, well, cheery class. <laughs> but he was right. You need to figure out your theology of suffering and the sovereignty of God before you get that phone call. And so the Bible gives us plenty of examples of this in Scripture so that we can be ready, so that we can build the foundation because God reigns over everything and He keeps you. And He keeps you, one way He keeps you is through the preaching and the teaching of, your, or of His Word so that you might think about these things on a cold Sunday morning. Because Peter says that we will face trials of various kinds or various trials. In other words, there's a lot of different ways in which you can suffer in this life. I thought about this for a while. I came up with three really broad categories, and even these categories uh, somewhat overlap. What are the different kinds of trials that you and I face? Well, the first one is this. The general reality of life in a fallen, in a cursed world. God, in response to the sin of man, has cursed the ground. He has frustrated our work. 
He says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, now you're going to bring forward fruit. No, thorns and thistles. I'm going to make this hard on you. You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to experience the curse of God upon his creation. You're going to have those Monday blues. You're going to be frustrated with your work. That's a trial in this life. This manifests itself in many different ways. We live in a world that is ruled in some ways by decay and death. And so we deal with frustrations in work, to aging, to our bodies failing and giving out. Everything from getting sick with cancer to the stomach bug is a form of this trial. And I hate the stomach bug. Really. Like, God, why did you invent that? These are trials. They are pressure points reminding us that this world is not as it should be. The second category of trials is the temptations we face to sin. The world is cursed, one type of trial. The next is that we face real temptations day to day to go our own way, to do whatever it is we want to do, to take the good things of life and to hold them so tightly that we turn them into idols. We take good things and we make them bad because of our hearts. It flows from the inside out, not the outside in. This is a great trial in our life is that we face the temptation to sin again and again. Third, final broad category here, is the trial of opposition or persecution for following Christ. This world loves sin and hates holiness. It is under the influence of the evil one. This world hates God and it hates Christ. And so Christ says to us, In the Gospels, this world has hated me, so it will love you. No. He says, you're not above your master. If this world hates me, it will hate you. And one of the problems we run into again and again in evangelicalism is we think that when we've run into opposition for our Christian beliefs that we've somehow failed. That we haven't been winsome enough. Was Christ not winsome enough? Was he not polite enough. Of course he was. Right. Of course there's ways to face opposition for just being a jerk or whatever. But the sign or facing opposition is often a sign of faithfulness, not failure. If the world has no problem with you, it's because you're no threat and you're not really following Christ. If the world only accepts us and it rejects our master, then he is he really our master. And so, in this world, we will face trials of various kinds. They take various forms. They last various amounts of time and can be varying degrees of intensity. But they are to be expected by us. This is not something that is abnormal. These are things that we will all experience. So the natural question comes then, in verse 7, why? Why do we have all of these trials? If God really does control every single event, every moment of history, if he has predestined us from before the foundation of the world, if he rules over everything at all times, why does he bring trials into your life? It's the very natural question. And it only gets more daunting the greater the trial and the deeper the suffering. I remember, it was just two years ago this past week, standing behind the pulpit at my nephew's funeral. It was the first funeral I really preached. 
not the funeral you expect to be preaching for your first one. And I said from the pulpit, I'm supposed to be the answer guy, but I don't have an answer for this one. He was 10. Why? Well, Peter gives us an initial answer, though we probably don't like it, in verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses trials to test our faith and to refine it like gold. It's not a sweet answer. It can be really bitter in our mouths, especially in the midst of a trial, but it remains true. If I look back over the course of my life, my times of greatest growth in the faith and in sanctification are always, without exception, accompanied with some great trial. Every single one. My parents got divorced right after I graduated high school. I was a wreck for many reasons. At that point in time, there's at least one individual in this room who can attest to the fact that I was not serious about my faith at all. All of that changed. My second year at college, in the Christian college, I was involved with some campus-wide debates. And I got to meet people who told me, people I'd never met, who told me already that they hated me. These were Christians. That was puzzling to me. Opened my eyes to some things, and I grew in my faith. And I started to learn to just not care what some people think. My senior year at that same college, I was involved in an even bigger conflict at my school. And God used that one to say, Levi, you need to go into ministry. I was not planning on that. Even these last two years of church planting, the Lord has blessed this church in immeasurable ways. Each one of you sitting here is one of those ways. But it's been difficult. Leaving a healthy and well-established church to say, hey, let's start something from scratch right in the middle of COVID. I remember Dr. Canada saying something along the lines of, uh, in the parking lot after one of our first meetings, you really want to do this? I was like, yeah, I'm crazy enough to want to do this. But the Lord has grown me and refined me and is still doing so. That's just a brief survey of my life. You guys could multiply these stories. I haven't even mentioned how the Lord has used the goods and the trials of marriage to shape me, of parenting to show me how selfish I was before I had kids. This should comfort us. Your trials do not go to waste. The Lord uses them. Even if you can't see it in the moment, the Lord uses it. For the megaphone of pain and suffering has a way of clarifying of showing us what is really important and what is not. When you've been through a trial and see the Lord sustain you, when you see that He has strengthened you, it toughens you up. It's like playing a sport. You guys know I played basketball growing up. But how does anyone improve at anything in life, especially sports? You put in hard work. You don't put in easy work. You put in hard work. If it's easy, it's not really doing you any good. You don't get good at things by being, ac- or by being or at accident. For example, a good coach will put his team through trials again and again to test them, to refine them, to push them to their limits, to prepare them for the challenges they will face. 
This is why a soft coach who doesn't require anything from his players or any accountability is not a good coach, as much as he may seem so. I'll give you an example. Our coach used to, at the end of practice, especially early in the season, he would line us all up on the baseline and he'd call one person's name out and he'd say, you've got to make two free throws in a row. If you don't make two free throws in a row, everybody's running a killer. You can't call him killer anymore. That's politically incorrect. But you had to touch every line down and back, down the court. All right. And what he was doing there is he was simulating the pressure you feel in the high-pressure moment for a free throw. Right. So my boys and I were watching March Madness yesterday and Kansas lost, and I had them winning the whole thing. And I was, like, yelling at the screen because they kept missing free throws. I'm like, make your free throws. Good night. Um, I remember one time, so the coach, our coach, would, depending on how we had done that practice and how much he wanted us to run, he'd either pick a really good free throw shooter to come forward, he'll probably make two, or he'd pick Levi, who would probably miss that. Right, and one, one day in practice, he, he called me forward. The whole team's watching. Nobody wants to run. He's like, you've got to shoot two. You've got to make two, or otherwise we're running. And much to his chagrin, I made them both. <laughs> so then he called someone else up because <laughs> he really wanted us to run. But this is what coaches do. They put you through the trial because you're never going to be prepared for it unless I simulate it as best as I can. And God is so much better than any coach we have ever had. In the same way, in a greater degree, God uses trials to test you, to refine you. And we should note he places an emphasis here, Peter does, on the genuineness of our faith. This is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament, that there are two types of faith out there. There's a genuine faith, and there's a spurious or a fake faith. Jesus tells us of this in the parable of the soils. You'll note that there are four soils. Only one of those four soils doesn't have a positive reaction to the seed, to the gospel. One has a completely positive reaction and it grows and brings forth fruit. And you've got two in the middle who there's initial growth and then they wither away and die. You'll see this in the gospel uh, of John that there are people where John describes who have faith in Jesus, but this is tongue-in-cheek faith because as Jesus keeps teaching, they all leave him. It's a fake faith. Well, God uses trials to, as it were, thin the herd to show us who really has real faith and who does not. Because not all faith is the same. Some people merely have faith in faith. Some will use all the same terms that we use, but they will fill those terms with different definitions. One of the trials we face today is an increasing hostility towards Christianity, especially our sexual ethic. We'll get you fired from your job, probably, if you say it in public. And we've seen over the last X amount of years many pastors, leaders, and Christians who in the face of that trial have doubled down and they've remained faithful. They passed the test. They were ready for it. But sadly, we've also seen many pastors, leaders, and Christians compromise Deny what the Bible clearly says. And it's, it's fair to say at this point that they have failed the test. Their faith was fake. It was not a genuine faith. If you can't pass the trial, then your faith is not really real. And so one of the main purposes of our trials is to demonstrate genuine faith and to weed out those who do not really 
believe in Christ and therefore to strengthen the rest. This is where we live. We live in the midst of various trials, clinging to God through Christ. And the stress of this passage is on faith. We spent two weeks, two weeks, building that foundation of God's work in saving us. But we have to note this, God does not, cannot, and will not believe for you. He does not have your faith for you. Does God give you a new heart capable of believing? Yes. Does he empower you to believe through his spirit? Yes. Does he do the act of believing for you? No. You must do that on your own. And so Peter lays out this struggle we face, the battle of faith, in verse 8. Speaking of the revelation of Christ, he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Though we have never seen Christ, except in Scripture, we love him. We believe in him. We have joy in him. We look forward to his return with inexpressible joy, even though right now we may really grieve whatever we are going through. This summarizes that reality of faith. Faith really is a call to look past what you are currently seeing. The world's spinning out of control. The darkness has descended upon you in whatever form it has descended upon you. My family's falling apart. My depression will not lift. You can dwell on those things and wither away, or you can look past what you can see to Christ. The essence of faith is that we do not let the things of this world cloud out our vision of Christ. Easy concept, hard in the night. But it's the battle we fight. That though we cannot see Christ and we can see our problems, we still must magnify Him and not our trials. For this trial is momentary. It's light and there's a greater prize. Going back to our athlete analogy. Why do athletes literally punish their bodies? Why do they deny themselves? Why do they go to bed early instead of partying all the time? Why do they wake up early? Why do they get out and run until they nearly pass out? Why do they lift weights until they reach muscle failure? Why do they take a beating in their given sport? Because their gaze in their hearts is fixed upon some prize that they think all of these sacrifices are worth. And in the same way, our faith is rooted in the belief that the reward we will get is greater than the trial we currently face. That's why we sing songs like we did this morning. It is well with my soul that even as the sea billows of life consume us, even though it seems like we are drowning, we can cry out, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. So we rejoice, even as we grieve. For there is something greater than our suffering. That leads us to the reward. What is the reward? Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What is the outcome of your faith? 
It is your salvation. What is the goal of your trials and your faith? It is your salvation. That though the trials that God uses to mold us and shape us and strengthen us, they lead to something greater. So we're back to the basics of the Christian faith here. These first verses that open up uh, 1 Peter. You are saved by grace. God didn't pick you because of anything you had done. God chose you wholly based upon who he is. It is a gift. It is a grace. But that you are saved by grace through faith. Grace and faith come together. He chooses us, but we must exercise the faith. To put it another way, no personal faith, no salvation whatsoever. And through this faith, Peter says, your souls will be saved. What does that mean? What does it mean that your souls will be saved? Well, the Greek word here used for soul is psyche. Yes, that's the same prefix we use for psychology. And like all words, they can be used, or it can be used in different ways, in different contexts. For example, Peter, in his writing, tends to use this word differently than Paul does in his writing. This isn't me just making this up. Uh, Peter Davids, in his commentary on 1 Peter, writes this. In this, he, that's Peter, is using soul not as a contrast to the body, nor, as Paul often does, in a negative way for the natural human self, as opposed to a spiritual person, but he uses it as a typical Hebrew for the total person, the self. In other words, Hebrew generally used the term soul not as we do often, as something distinct from the body, but as a reference for the whole person. In fact, in English, we still have some trace elements of this, that we sometimes use soul to refer to something distinct from the body, and we still sometimes use it to refer to the entire person. For example, when somebody is stranded on a desert island and they write SOS on the beach, it stands for Save Our Souls. They're not asking that you would parachute Billy Graham down there so that they could say the sinner's prayer. They want you to come save them. I did some research this week. I, I pulled a, here's a headline from a newspaper marking the uh, sinking of the Titanic. It said this, only 868 souls are saved from the Titanic. Again, this is not counting how many decisions were made for Christ as the Titanic went down. The word soul can be used in different ways. Peter here uses it to refer to the whole person. The salvation of all of you. That is the reward that we are looking forward to. The salvation of the whole person. Body, spirit, mind, and soul. That they will be redeemed, renewed, reanimated, reconstituted, and made fully in the image of Christ. That is the Christian hope. Not that just your spirit will be saved. That's not a great encouragement as your body suffers. But that your body will be saved as well. Both. They will be restored. There is more hope there than just part of you being saved. So here is the point. To borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, our trials are light and momentary in comparison to this total salvation. It doesn't feel like that in the midst of the trial, but the Bible tells us this again and again, that what you are going through right now is light. It's not that heavy. It will only last a small amount of time, but your reward is eternal. 
and it is far weightier. Again, back to sports, we literally have men and women who dedicate their entire lives to running a 10-second race so they can get a ribbon with a piece of metal around it. And we admire their discipline and their dedication. And it is admirable. But your reward is greater than a piece of metal that will one day decay. And so we have these two realities in our emotions. Grief. It is right to grieve the evil of this world. It is holy to look at evil right in the eye, call it what it is, and to respond as Christ responds. To grieve. But we must not let that grief dominate us. It cannot become the center of who we are. Our center is found in a greater joy. A desire to rejoice and to not let the darkness of this age to swallow up the light of Christ. This is the battle of faith. And it is how God shapes his people in this age. It is how he refines you. He will not let us just remain as we are. It is how he teaches us what is more valuable. It is how he trains our heart for the revelation of Christ. While Christians can and must grieve, they should never despair. Suffering in a real way is preparatory. It prepares us for our reward. So take heart, and this really should comfort you. Not a single moment of your suffering in this life is meaningless. None of it was just added on top. None of it was outside of God's control. None of it was random. And none of it is ultimate. And so until we receive the reward, we live in that tension. You're going to have really bad days. But you must look beyond them. I'll give you a homework assignment for this week. There's a song that has become very meaningful to me and my family and my extended family with the trials we've been through by a Christian band called the Grey Havens. The song is called A Far Kingdom, and I think it captures this tension really well as it looks forward to the coming kingdom of Christ. Here's an excerpt from the song, A Far Kingdom. There is a far kingdom on the other side of the glass, and by a faint light we see. Still, there is more gladness, longing for the sight, than to behold or to be filled by anything else. There's a river we will know, ever clear and ever full, from the fount that overflows in the light of the King. And when we drink it, we will find that this joy, ever full, will ever rise, and will rise on in the kingdom. The author reminds us that our joy will always be fully satisfied in the kingdom, but also always growing and increasing. That blows my mind. And that is what we look forward to. And that even in the midst of the suffering, there is greater joy in just looking forward to that than having anything else in this life. To that king in his unending light, we look, we hope, and we rejoice. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you this morning that you have spoken to us in your word and that in it we see that faint light that is ever growing. Lord, we ask that your kingdom indeed would come to this earth, that your will would be done here as it is done in heaven. But until that day, Lord, may you keep us. May you sustain us through the darkness and the trials that we often face. And through that, may you refine us, that we might become more like your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.